And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and while Max Verstappen won again, there were surprises in the pack behind with McLaren's Lando Norris, his nearest challenger, Aston Martin striking back, Leclerc hitting the wall before the race even started, and Mercedes having what Toto Wolff characterised as the worst weekend. So why did Interlagos shake up the form book in the chasing pack, and how did things go so badly wrong for last year's Brazil race winners? I'm Ed Shaw, and joining us to explain all are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, we'll come to you first. I'll say hello to you as if I wasn't with you about half an hour ago when we uh, left the circuit to our <laughs> respective hotels. Uh, all good in that time? Hello, Ed. How are you? <laughs> I am great. Thank you very much. It's good to see you after all this Excellent. time. And Scott Mitchell-Malm, we haven't seen you in person quite so much, but you've been eagerly following things from base. I have, yeah. It's been uh, been pleasant. The Brazilian Grand Prix weekend is uh, is it's another sad one to, to miss being out on site, but always fun to to follow whether you're, you're on site or watching from afar um a sort of yeah perfectly decent sprint race and then a pretty good grand prix with a great finish thanks to fernando alonso and sergio perez so in the grand scheme of things the context of some of the races in 2023 i've enjoyed this weekend yeah brazil can always be relied on to produce some uh, some good drama on track and a little bit off track with the storm we had on on saturday which caused all sorts of problems on the roads as well I spent about half an hour at a uh uh, at a junction blocked in by a bendy bus, which I'm still a little bit irritated by. Word but, on uh, the street is that you had other journalists <laughs> in your shower as well. Can you confirm or deny this? Yes, there were uh, some of our uh, uh, our friends from Autosport, Matt Q and Jake Boxer Leg, had problems with their hotel services. So uh, I, of a morning, allowed them to use my uh, use my facilities, which uh, was only the decent thing to do. But yeah. 
Sao Paulo, uh, not necessarily the most robust in terms of infrastructure. So that storm did cause quite a few problems, but uh, fortunately nothing particularly major, although it was uh, was quite the storm. We also had a fire, electrical fire in the media centre this morning. You, you, you've missed that. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was, uh, that was quite dramatic. It uh, eventually seemed to be got under control, but we were wondering whether we'd... Uh, whether we'd have power for, for the rest of the afternoon and indeed whether we'd be on fire. But uh, that was that was dealt with well. But the, these are the kind of rough around the edges thing things you get in Brazil. That's part of the challenge. You had your um, opportunity to escape a, um, a, a traffic collision, which has been on your Brazil bucket list for a few years, hasn't it? Yes, yeah, it's... Uh, it was all quite uh, dramatic when trying to get around that bendy bus. And, two crash uh, buses, was it? Well, no, they, the buses were just blocking the way, ah. but I had to squeeze between two buses very precisely to get out, and uh, the car behind didn't do it quite so well. Let's put it, <laughs> let's put it that way. So uh, I, I was home free onto the onto the empty road I wanted to go onto, but it was uh, yeah, quite um, quite dramatic. A lot of very uh, very unhappy. Uh, palistas at that particular junction roaming around, <laughs> getting very unhappy with the uh, the blockage. But those are just the sort of scenes you uh, get here. Fortunately, getting back from the track today was no problem at all. So let's get on with the matter at hand, Mark, and we'll get to our question of how the race was won, indeed how the races were won, given it was actually a similar story in the sprint. So we had Lando Norris trying to take the fight to Verstappen, not quite being able to. He was able to challenge for the lead in the Grand Prix, so how close was the McLaren to the Red Bull and could Norris have done any more? It's very close indeed over one lap. In fact, you could argue that it probably had a small edge on new tyres on one lap, over one lap. Um, but as soon as you got three or four laps in, then the, the Red Bull's um, true advantage became apparent. Um, but it wasn't as big as usual over the, the McLaren this weekend. Um, I think Red Bull have been quite conservative with... Um, with, with how they'd uh, what what level of wing they'd use if you remember last year here they had um, a bit of a nightmare with the tyres and the way they, they came here um, wanting to protect the tyres above all else and perhaps a little bit conservative on the ride heights after what happened to Mercedes and Ferrari in Austin and uh, it, it did appear if he went on board with any land on Norris he could hear it hitting the ground a lot. Um, so I think it was clear that the, the McLaren was running a little bit lower, so um, probably achieving more of its potential than the Red Bull was of its. So it, it brought them very, very close together. Um, and they would just, Max and Lando, just put distance on everyone. Um, and the the, the, the the race was uh, a two-stop race with three three stints and each of those stints were just like a, a repeat of the the sprint race on Saturday. Uh, very, very similar performance patterns. And uh, yeah, as, as you say, Lando got a, a run on, on on Max on the second lap of the restarted race uh, when, when, when the tyres were still um, allowing the McLaren to be fully competitive. Um, but then, you know, Max uh, just, just pulled out enough that um, he was able to keep him out of DRS range thereafter. And, uh, but that, he really did, he was seriously pushed. And, uh, yeah, I think um, the McLaren is clearly the, the second fastest car and has been really since its Austria update. And uh, as they are getting more and more from it, as they more fully understand it, and, and Red Bull have sort of, switched off development uh, you know it's it's it is it, the gap is closing but it probably won't close 
Um, well, who knows? It might, it might close enough in the next couple of races that we, we see the breakthrough victory. But um, yeah, McLaren's been making continuous progress. So and that was apparent again. And they were just in, the, in their own race, weren't they? I think if we'd seen a couple of weekends or well, several weekends now from Norris in a row where, for whatever reason, qualifying was smoother, whether that's him not making mistakes or McLaren executing it more smoothly, I think that evidence of McLaren having the second fastest car would be a lot stronger because obviously on paper, it didn't look like that in Mexico because Norris was having to burn from the stern there, but the race pace on Sunday was mega in Mexico. I feel like he um, he obviously knows that there have been errors like that. And, you know, Qatar is a, another one where he felt there was a big missed opportunity for, for him there. Obviously, the Mercedes took care of themselves at turn one in Qatar. But there have been a few races where actually, like the McLaren hasn't been the second best car in terms of the result. It hasn't been best of the rest. But actually, in a smooth weekend, a maximised weekend, it probably would have been. And then, so maybe if that had played out differently... Of it, like Merck's weekend here, for example, would have still been absolutely abject, really awful, but it wouldn't have been so aggressively out of kilter with the last couple of weekends where it's like, oh, well, Mercedes has been second best, whereas this gone, I, I agree with Mark. I think, I think the McLaren just is the, 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 the second fastest car. And sort of Lando talked about this a few times through the weekend and got a good answer out of him. I think it was after the sprint where... You know, he knows that there have been things that he hasn't done great as a driver and have been missed out on, but he does feel like he's more on top of this car than ever. And like this weekend was just a really good showcase um, for that. Obviously, he undid a lot of the damage straight away at the first attempt at the start for the for the Grand Prix, didn't he? The um, the worry about what he'd do from sixth on the grid was basically immediately eradicated by turn one. I think the thing that's most impressive is that certainly on the podcast we did before Brazil, I think I said McLaren wouldn't be especially strong bots as strong as their recent standards in Interlagos basically because the team didn't expect to be but there you were the second best car which I think is showing that they're chipping away at their weaknesses as well as building on their strengths as well which is very very good for McLaren and yeah strong performance and I think it's another one of those ones where it's so easy to gloss over Max Verstappen's performance yes the Red Bull was the strongest car but again this was another weekend when it would have been so easy just to be a little bit off it and slip behind and not get the results that were possible and once again Verstappen was able to get the most out of the car or enough to most out of the car in order to uh, uh to, to be winning both races obviously he didn't get sprint pole but other than that it was uh two wins and uh a Grand Prix pole position so yeah and, and it, a great weekend from him and well executed by Red Bull as usual but there's only so many times we can uh say that sort of thing we should also briefly talk about Oscar Piastri as well while we're talking about McLaren Mark because he obviously had a well it it was sort of a bad weekend wasn't it and it was certainly bad in terms of the results but his pace was good wasn't it it was just one of those ones where things just didn't come together yeah I mean he wasn't on Lando's pace but he's he, he, he was um you know, considering it's not a track he's been to before in a sprint weekend format, so you just like one practice session of like a total of about twelve laps, and then you're into qualifying. Um, it wasn't that bad. But he's pacing the race. You can't really make a, a an objective comparison because his car took um, a heavy damage um, in the in the first start before the red flag, and uh, they managed to fix quite a bit of it, um, but it still had a missing big chunk of. Uh, one corner at the back of the car. So it was, uh, it, was, it was a long way down on aero performance and consequently tyre usage. 
Yeah, it was uh, another one of those weekends as well when Piastri was very positive because he could have blamed some bad luck for everything not coming together across the weekend, but he was at pains not to use that as a, an excuse. And I think, once again, that shows the the right mentality for him. But yeah, it was uh, a bit of a, a nothing race then in the end for him. But Scott, also, while we're on McLaren, Lando Norris now has a share in my favourite F1 record. Most podium finishes without a win. He's had 13 second and third places in Grand Prix now, equal with the legend that is Nick Heidfeld. Where do you stand on that record? Is it a good or a bad thing? Uh, well, it... It's driver-specific, isn't it? It depends on the circumstances of your career, the time spent in top cars, how many teammates did you have that scored wins while you were only scoring podiums, that kind of thing. I think for for Norris, it's very much a a reflection of the fact that he's doing a very good job at grabbing opportunities uh, when, when they arrive because apart from a very, very brief moment in 2021, he was, he, he has not had a car that's capable of, of winning, it's um, unfortunate that the 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 best and most competitive car he's got in his career, and is coinciding nicely with the quality of his driving being an all time high, but he just happens to be going up against the one of the best driver car combinations in Formula One history in Verstappen and this Red Bull. You know, any other I feel like any other time over the last probably decade or fifteen years, if a driver like Norris had a car like this McLaren, they'd they'd, they'd, they'd they'd have grabbed a win or two. But you don't have that opportunity, really, when Verstappen and the uh, Verstappen and the Red Bull um, are as as good a combination as as we have now. So for, for Norris, I think, in terms of having that record uh, and sharing it, and there's a decent chance by the end of the season he'll have it outright, as I think more podiums are likely, but that win's going to be tricky. The caveat for him, obviously, with this being a good record to have, is that he shouldn't be anywhere near it because if if... If things had gone differently at Monza in 21, or especially Sochi in 21, he'd be a race winner already. And I think what would that have been? Podium number five or six, and he'd he'd have had a race win under his belt. And he was just slightly on the wrong side of things at Monza, where it was Daniel Ricciardo's time to shine for McLaren. And then at Sochi, as much as a lot of people, mainly Lando's critics, blame him almost exclusively for failing to win that Grand Prix. McLaren misread things, McLaren judged the weather wrong and they were effectively asking the wrong questions and getting the wrong data back from Norris or not overruling the input that Norris made with the the rain that was coming in and what tyre to be on at the at the right time. That only needed to be handled very slightly differently, not even by Lando himself, and he'd have won that race. So if the rain had held off by, what, 15 minutes or something like that, then he'd have won that race. So you can you can kind of look at it both ways. You can say, oh, he probably should have been a race winner by now but I don't really think it's fair to hold it against him that he isn't. And I think it's more reflective of the quality of his driving and overall performance that he is at this point now. What I would say is I would I would back him to have more opportunities to win races in the future. And I would I would obviously back him to win races as well. I don't think he'll he'll not I don't think he'd be very unlucky if he just constantly adds to this record from from here on out. Yeah, it's not like he's squandering wins left, right and centre by any stretch of the imagination. He's operating at a high level. Yeah, there's still a few areas of weakness by his own admission he wants to improve. But I think you have to take that record as a positive because he's done that in cars that have never been the best car in that period. Yes, there have been times when it's been the second best car, so that makes it easy to get podiums. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a good body of work. So an interesting record for him to hold. And I'm sure it's only going to be a temporary uh, record if he gets it uh, outright, uh, whatever happens. Mark, let's move on now to the battle behind, because while the top two was 
ultimately fairly straightforward. We had that thrilling fight to the flag between Fernando Alonso and Sergio Perez, and it looked like Perez had the battle won on the penultimate lap. Then Alonso came back, then Perez came back at him, only missed out by 53,000, I think it was, on the line. How did that battle play out, and how unlikely was it that Alonso prevailed? It was very unlikely, um, given that Perez was on his tail on a much, in a much faster car uh, by lap 33, um, a 71-lap race. Uh, and yet it, it took until the penultimate lap for Perez to actually make a move to get by. And um, it, it played out in, the, well, I guess it started with Alonso qualifying on the second row and, and Perez on the, on the fifth row. Uh, and that was partly because of the yellow flags in qualifying that he caught, which in turn was because he went out so late um, rather than being at the front of the, front, front of the queue. So as, as the Astons were. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so that gave Alonso the initial track position. Um, Perez had to get past the the Mercs in particular um, before he got to Alonso. Alonso made a crucial pass on Hamilton on the first lap at turn four. If he'd um, had to spend the first stint trying to find a way by Hamilton, he, he probably wouldn't have had the tyre offset against Perez later on. So that probably um, was very crucial. Um, Perez was sort of forced in quite early because the Mercs had come in early, just in desperation, really. And Alonso was able to stay out quite a bit longer, so he had a better set of tyres for the second stint. Um, but the Red Bull is, you know, much improved though the Aston was this weekend. It, it, the Red Bull's still a much faster car, probably by about half a second. And uh, Perez was soon right with them. Um, but then Alonso kept himself just out of DRS range for long enough that Perez had um, begun using up his tyres and had had to back off down to pretty much Alonso's pace. And then Alonso was able to edge away for the for the rest of the stint. Had about three seconds on him by the time they came to make the second pit stops. And so the, the, the game really started then and that, the, into that final stint. Alonso just cruised and let him let let Perez catch right up to him, um, reasoning that he needed to have the tyre life by the time Perez arrived there. Um, and also it, it, it effectively made Perez use up some valuable tyre life in, in closing that gap. Um, but then Alonso just used every trick in the book. He was fantastic in defence. Um, he was using different lines at different times. He was using the battery deployment differently from lap to lap, just confusing the hell out of Perez, not giving him a clear idea of where he might form a move and how he might do it. And, um, yeah, eventually, of course, he, Alonso's tyres became tired enough that he no longer had that um, great traction out of turn 12, um, which he'd been doing by like using a particular driving style into the slow corners, sort of doing a V sort of style of line, which gives you the good traction coming out and uh, he'd been using that and but eventually the tyres had sort of seen their best days and Perez got a really good run on him and got through it into the centre S's but he'd gone a little bit deep and that's all Alonso needed to uh, to to do the the uh, retaliatory move and uh, yeah then, then Perez had a, another opportunity on the drag race up the hill for the final time and that's, that's how the cross line it was a thrilling battle um, but it was just just so typical Alonso and it's tenacity and it's um, resourcefulness and he's just an incredible performer isn't he 
He was really, it was, it was absolutely excellent. There was something I noticed in those last few laps that I really liked was the line that he was taking through the the final real corner. He was um, every time he went in there, you thought he was going in too deep and missing the corner, but it was just because it was just giving giving him that drive off, off the corner, and pretty much almost every time. Um, Perez was going in a lot tighter, even using the inside curb. But but Alonso was just he was just giving himself those that extra car length or two. The difference between you know a tenth or two going down that straight, so he's not vulnerable or so vulnerable that he's going to get blown past going into turn one. And he was he was the way he was using his tires, especially through those last couple of real corners, just to give himself that extra margin, knowing that Checo couldn't follow quite as closely in in the dirty air. Just Real, real strategic, and um, I think he's. I think it was something Fernando said afterwards as well. He says, you know, the way he was changing his lines was kind of designed to, as Mark was saying, upset Checo a little bit, but also you know cause a little bit of turbulence for the car that um, as as it drove into into every corner. And if anyone thinks, oh well, of course Fernando's going to say that he's going to ham it up because we know that Fernando loves to uh, toot his own horn. At the same time, if you don't believe that Fernando was doing this and doing this all on intentional, you have not been paying attention to Fernando Alonso. I mean, even in the the the, the few years I've been fortunate enough to, to to watch him work, I've seen him practice um, cheeky, borderline illegal lines through runoff areas in reconnaissance laps to the grid. And I think there was a sprint race at Austria, was it, where he used he pulled into his grid slot that he was going to be using for the main race and did a burnout from it to give himself a bit more grip for when he started Sunday's Grand Prix from there. Like that that is what Fernando does. He he looks for every possible uh every possible advantage he can get. And I think Checo even alluded to it afterwards and said something like, you know, you know that Fernando's gonna play every game he can think of, but he's always gonna do it fair. And at no point did, did Fernando cross the line, right up to the point of how he changed his line on the run to the checkered flag. Because there's a little movement. It's not unfair. It's not dangerous. It's not going to cause an airplane crash. But it just causes Checo to to change, have to change direction slightly in terms of how he wants to try and get around Alonso to the flag. And what that means, I mean, that could be the difference. When you're talking 53 thousandths of a second, it's stuff like that that can to make the difference. So Fernando is just, um, it just got, it just shows that he was right to say in recent weeks. So there have been times where his performance hasn't been quite as good as it was earlier in the season. But in general. He has still been performing well. He finally got the car and the opportunity to show that with a podium finish. And it's amazing that he was able to pull it off given how long he had quite a high-performing Checo this weekend on his tail. Yeah. I mean, it's just Fernando Alonso all over as an absolute masterclass. And Perez was genuinely quite content after the race, even though he'd missed out on the podium. He had a great fight and he paid tribute to what Alonso did. Lance Stroll as well is worth a mention. Fifth place, good strong weekend for him. Third on the grid as well. His race pace was was pretty good. It wasn't quite at Alonso's level, but he had a good performance. So very, very good for Stroll to have that good weekend after such a difficult time. And hopefully that gets him a bit more onto an even keel. He was a lot happier with the car this weekend. And that shows that, you know, as we've been saying, Stroll is a capable Grand Prix driver. And this is the kind of thing he needs to be doing week in, week out relative to Alonso. And hopefully that'll be uh, a bit of a a fresh start to his, his season there. But overall, Mark, we've got to talk about the comeback from Aston Martin. Where has this pace come from? They were genuinely the third quickest car in the race. They were able to lock out the second row. Okay, a little bit of fortune in terms of the, uh, where they were in the pit lane, being able to get out first in, in Friday qualifying. But 
that car was genuinely quick, and it's not been genuinely quick for quite some time. Yeah, we saw flashes of it in the race pace in Austin, didn't we, after they'd um, reverted to um, the pit lane starts and, and, and changed the spec a bit and gone back on one car and kept a new one on the other one. And here they had a, a bit of an amalgam of the different um, the different specs, and they they ran probably lower downforce than most, so it had a real good turn of uh, straight line speed, which was in combination with um, Red Bull having gone big with the rear wing for the tyres, uh, it, it, it probably contributed to towards Alonso being able to stay ahead of Perez for all those laps. Um, but it, yes, it was just nicely balanced. They've sort of refound the car's sweet spot, but with the, the development parts on it or some of the development parts on it. And it's looking a bit more like it looked early in the season. And um, I think it may be flattered a little bit as well, of course, by the underpar performances from Ferrari and particularly by Mercedes. Where do you two stand on how much the last couple of races has been genuine experimenting and how much of it might be making an excuse for the upgrade not working as well as it should have done and therefore mixing a match in to, to find something that works? Oh, I think is has been an element of, of um, the, the, the upgrade not giving them what they um, expected in simulation and they've had to uh, sort of understand where, there is, where this is coming from and when you've got a, a, a triple header, you're not sort of able to go back after the race and then re relook at everything. I think when it's going bang, 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 and, and you know, I think um, it was quite a, a pragmatic solution to do what they did um, in Austin and Mexico. Um, and it seems to have worked. It seems to have found some direction in which they can fruitfully follow. And uh, yeah, it, it's good to see because it, it was a sort of, would have been sad to see it just tail off completely at the end of the season. Wouldn't it? It, it's nice to see it sort of, back in some sort of contention. Yeah, the reason I ask is because I feel like, I know that this is a slightly generous interpretation of what happened, but but we have scrutinised their form quite a lot and been quite critical where necessary. So I feel like, you know, it comes from a, it comes from a place of having genuinely been a bit critical that I I, I believe what they've said about, you know, I think Tom McCulloch described them as public R&D projects or R&D projects in front of in full view of everybody that I I know that you know they were planning upgrades for a while obviously this was aimed at improving this car but the narrative around it was it was always also geared to something carrying over to 24 and ideas for 24 and when they'd had the problems that they've had in the second half of the season it makes sense that anything that you do is going to be experimental to try and fix some issues that have emerged and you obviously want them to work for next year because the, the 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 regs are stable and then when they didn't work as you were saying there mark it's just prudent and practical to be like right okay how do we then use this scenario as best we can so the the it was quite drastic in austin to do a double pit lane start and it was also fairly drastic in mexico to commit one car to a to a pit lane start but then as mcculloch was saying they then come here and they've done that work and they just treat this like a normal race weekend. That's all it is. It's just pure performance focus. It's not about experimenting. And yeah, you have to say that in line with some other elements of their upgrades this season, not doing what expected, there's a little bit of disappointment and, and failure if they don't have just a full 100% spec that they introduced in Austin on the car this weekend. If there's any mixing and matching, it does mean something hasn't quite worked the way it meant to. But they've, they've done the hard work to figure that out. And more than anything they've backed up their words with action by focusing this weekend and actually getting performance out of the car. Now, we need to go to Vegas and then Abu Dhabi 
to get an idea of whether it's sustainable, whether or not the way that they positioned the car this weekend, it looked quite fast on the straights, just meant that they had a nice performance profile for Interlagos. But the the swing in where they were the last few races, because this goes back way before the upgrade, versus where they are where they were this weekend, is too dramatic, feels feels too dramatic to me to be, you know, a fluke, a, a one-off. It does suggest to me that they have started to to sort themselves out. So I'd I'd be inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and say that there's something, you know, significant and substantial behind this. Well the absolute key thing is it shows they've been able to understand what is the best combination of what they've got, put it on the track, it's run well, it's been competitive. So that shows a good level of understanding. There's probably still some things they need to work out with other aspects of the package. But yeah, that's that's positive. And once you start to lose your way a little bit, sometimes you have to sort of snap back to this sort of thing and it's really positive they've been able to do it. So yeah, well done to Aston Martin and yeah, Alonso's given them a, a much needed result. He said it was a, a relief that the performance was good and that was before we got the podium. That was after the sprint. Uh, the team needed that because if they had another weekend of things going a bit wrong then who knows what the effect would be. So yeah, very positive for them. Well, a quick diversion now, because the Brazilian Grand Prix was, of course, the quarterfinal stage of the race F1 Cup. For those who aren't familiar with it, this is some end-of-season fun now that the World Championship is over, and many of you have been following it on social media. It's essentially an elimination competition where you finish ahead of your opponent's stay in the Cup. As a reminder, Max Verstappen's got the real World Championship, so he's one of the drivers who's not qualified for our competition. This was the quarterfinal stage, Scott, so over to you for our results rundown. Yep, so the first matchup went Lewis Hamilton's way against Oscar Piastri. That was, um, as long as Lewis made it to the finish, that was basically set in stone from the moment uh, Piastri found himself racing a lap down after the restart. Um, but not such good news for the other Mercedes as George Russell lost his matchup with Pierre Gasly. And that was actually very much going away from Russell even before the DNF, which we'll come to in in a little bit. Um literally a non-starter for Charles Leclerc. So Lando Norris basically got a bye uh, through to the to the semi-finals. I suspect Lando would have edged it there. And then in a bit of a saving grace for Ferrari, Carlos Sainz completes the semi-finalists. He managed to edge out uh, Esteban Ocon's Alpine. So we've got a Mercedes, an Alpine, a McLaren and a Ferrari, which is quite an eclectic mix. Yeah, our four semi-finalists are Lewis Hamilton, Pierre Gasly, Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz. There for Pierre Gasly, perhaps the surprise semi-finalist there. Underdog. Exactly. Let's see how far he can go. Of course, both the Alpines are in the quarterfinals, so something's going well for them. And actually, they've had a few good moments in uh, in recent races. To find out about the draw that sets the semi-finals, you'll have to keep an eye on our Twitter, or rather X feed, or listen to our pre-Las Vegas podcast. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, 
an official partner of The Athletic. Scott, let's get into one of the major talking points of the weekend. What Toto Wolf called the unacceptable performance of Mercedes, that was only one of the many words he used to describe its form, none of which were particularly positive. Lewis Hamilton was eighth, George Russell retired from ninth. So what went so badly wrong for a team we thought should be a good podium shout a year on from its last win? Well, Mercedes either didn't know or wasn't saying, even by the end of the the weekend, and I believe very much that it was that the team didn't know. Um, it was a, a, a set-up misdirection of some kind um, and e- either something really, really, like either one individual thing so badly wrong it screwed everything or just a, a badly judged setup in, in, in a few areas because much like there's, there's, there's never a, a silver bullet to get something right in Formula 1, it's rare that it's just one thing. Um, especially as George Russell made several allusions to it being related to how they use the tyre, and that is such a dark art. You have no idea what single trigger um, that could be. Toto Wolff did say that the car was running um, a little bit higher um, than, than optimal, but he didn't think that that was going to be, you know, that wasn't the biggest factor. Just like he said, the fact that they had a really big rear wing that made them vulnerable on the straights wasn't the only factor. He felt that there was a, a fundamental mechanical issue with the car this weekend it just meant it wasn't working it was moving around sliding around loads the the rear couldn't keep up with the the front I mean it was using its tires up but also because it was so weak through the corners the advantage that you normally get from having a big rear wing wasn't there in the corners the tires were being used up loads it was slow in a straight line so it was a pretty rubbish race car it wasn't that fast it didn't look over its look after its tires very well and it was vulnerable to anyone that came up behind it in the slipstream and with the DRS. And the result was just, like I used the word earlier, an abject performance. It was miserable in the sprint and got worse on Sunday in the Grand Prix. I think Lewis Hamilton was more than a minute behind Verstappen at the flag, which is Mercedes' worst uh, race deficit, I think, since Singapore last year. Certainly the worst one of 2023. So there was um, the (laughs) the only redeeming thing I, I could think of for this weekend or this result for Mercedes is that at least they're not faced with the same dilemma that they had after Brazil last year, which was when they were tricked into thinking, oh, maybe we should stick with this concept after all because it won them the race. I don't think they'll be thinking that about the W40. Yeah, I suppose the other good thing was that Ferrari didn't maximise the points that were on offer as well. So that limited the damage in the Constructors' Championship. But yeah, really, really horrible weekend for Mercedes, Mark. Do you have a good handle on exactly what they got wrong. Obviously, these cars are all about the interaction of the aerodynamic characteristics and the mechanical platform. So something seems to have gone very awry. Yeah, I think they, I mean, they, they, these cars are so sensitive and the Mercedes in particular is so sensitive um, that it, it's, you know, they totally might have played it down, but they did run um, very conservative on the right height after, you know, the events of Austin. And they ran it too high and, you you lose significant downforce from that, and hence going in knowing that that's they had the big wing, um, and that combined with the setup, I don't think it'll take much to take it a, a lot off the pace once you start factoring in the, the compounding effects of tire take on a on a track which always imposes quite a lot of it, and yeah, it, it just it, it had the worst. Had the worst of everything, didn't it? In terms of its the the usual pattern of its performance, it was the you know it was slowest on the straight. It was slow through the corners. Heavy tire deck. 
So yeah, it just uh, they, they landed in an awkward place with the setup, and it was a sprint weekend. I think that's that's probably the best summary of it, because you know you you can't do much once uh, once you've got through that first practice session and you head straight into qualifying. I think a good um, summary of that was something that that Wolf said after the race, which was um, he he claimed that they did consider uh, a pit lane start because they knew after the sprint they were in trouble and you can't change anything meaningful, so they were going to be in for it again on Sunday. So pit lane start to break Park Ferme and make a bunch of setup changes to make the car better was apparently briefly considered, but they, did, they didn't know what the problem was. So therefore you're not going to... That, that Wolf, Wolf's argument is they wouldn't have known where to start in terms of making big setup changes, so you would risk too much with it being an unknown. It's different, isn't it? If you've got a very, very clear idea of what the problem is and what to do, you can make that change because you can back yourself to have the performance. But if, you, if you're if you not 100% sure, it's a huge risk to forfeit a good starting position, especially as I can't imagine the way that race played out was on Merck's agenda pre-race. However bad the sprint was, that the, the Grand Prix performance must have been worse than Mercedes was still expecting going into Sunday. Yeah, it was a pretty painful one, just the drivers going backwards. Obviously, Hamilton actually had quite a good first lap, gained a couple of places, was running third. But yeah, there, there was no chance of of staying there. Not much the drivers could do about that. Certainly not uh, Hamilton, who, who had the pace advantage over Russell. And Russell was getting a little bit frustrated at times over the radio. But uh, I think that's also part of some of the struggles he's been having compared to Hamilton uh, of late. Let's move on to Ferrari now, Mark, because they ended up with a modest set of results. Carlos Sainz was sixth in the Grand Prix. Charles Leclerc didn't start after hitting the wall on the formation lap, having led the way for Ferrari with fifth in the sprint. So what went wrong and what was possible for Leclerc had he made the start? Um, yeah, I think looking at the, the Leclerc problem on the formation lap first, it, some sort of mechanical failure made the hydraulic pump not work so we suddenly without steering or, or engine they said it's a, it wasn't a failure of the hydraulics but it resulted in them having no hydraulic pressure so it's some some other mechanical as as yet unspecified basically came a little bit undercooled in terms of the openings and the, the uh, around the engine cover and they discovered this in the the very high temperatures of the sprint where they were having to do a, an awful lot of lift and coasting and um yeah, so they they'd saved a new set of softs for Leclerc. You know, he qualified on the front row, um, and the thinking was at least if if he can get off the line ahead of Verstappen, at least he'll get some clear air for the first stint, or for you know for as as long as possible before uh, the inevitable. So um, yeah, they they were in better competitive shape than Mercedes. Um, but at no stage did they look as good as even Aston Martin. So, yeah, they're a long way from their best. Yeah, very unlucky for Leclerc, because I thought he had a really strong weekend performance, actually, especially given they pretty much with both cars compromised the sprint day in order to maximise the Grand Prix day, because they held back. Well, in Leclerc's case, he didn't use the fresh softs he could have done in sprint qualifying three and in fact didn't even use his his best used tyres the same with Sainz not using his, his best used tyres then so yeah uh, a bit of a shame for them but Scott what did you make of Leclerc's response to being in the wall because he's uh, he's good for a, a fun over the radio response when something goes wrong normally when he's made the mistake I thought this was uh, quite a good variation from him 
It was. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard Charles lament how unlucky he is before. Um, so it was a different flavour of uh, Leclerc radio angst and agony. Uh, but the desperation in his voice was um, was, was telling. I'm, I must I don't know about the two of you. I must admit when I first saw the image and you just see that he's in the wall, my first thought was, how the hell have you done that? And I just felt like that was a huge blunder. But then I saw um, while we were waiting for the for the replays, I had the, his onboard up, and you unfortunately it was the drive, it was the helmet facing cam. But even with that, you can see you could see that he'd gone deep into the corner, and something wasn't right. Um, and you can also hear on the audio that everything goes; it just cuts out. So it was very, it was then very clear that it was a mechanical fault. So I had. Uh, I had a huge amount of sympathy for him. He's, uh, um, but one thing I would say is it wasn't even... It, it made the podium of uh, radio exchanges that entertained me this weekend, but it wasn't actually the best. I think it was behind Daniel Ricciardo's expletive-ridden rant after the sprint race, where he said the F word about 10 times and had a massive rant about the DRS zone uh, down towards turn four. And then... Uh, Lando Norris, half uh, almost immediately after his qualifying lap in sprint qualifying on Saturday morning, asking rhetorically, why am I so shit at qualifying? And then finding out about 30 seconds later, he'd put it on pole. I thought that was very entertaining. <laughs> One of my favourite bits of radio was in the sprint when uh, Magnussen got uh, got pushed off a bit by Hulkenberg passing him, which wasn't picked up in the main feed. And Magnussen made his point. He just said, OK, nice. <laughs> on the radio that that, that was that was all he did but uh he obviously knew he couldn't have a go but he made his point i thought that was uh, unusually diplomatic for uh for k-mag but obviously his teammate and it didn't really matter i much prefer that that flavor of grassing up your teammate than what we heard from george russell the Grand Prix. <laughs> yeah, George, george's uh radio comments were not ideal were they i think uh showing a little bit of frustration and and pressure there being uh being generous but yeah interesting Obviously, we just talked about Ferrari and Mercedes. Just 20 points separating those two now in the battle for second in the Constructors' Championship. And of course, they're in it to win it, not finish second. But finishing second will matter to them, both from a perspective of sporting pride and also the financial advantage of it as well. So that battle could well go down to the wire. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. 
it's time to find your corner office comfort. Well, unfortunately, we'll not be able to answer questions from the Race Members Club as usual in the final part of the podcast, owing to some rather frustrating technical problems. We haven't actually been able to access the questions you sent. Our sincere apologies for that. We really appreciate the questions, and it's a shame we can't delve into them as usual because it's always a favourite part of the podcast. What we can do is hopefully, once we've got the questions, tackle them in our midweek podcast. And as a bonus, perhaps if there's something you'd like to ask based on what we've been saying in this podcast, feel free to fire in another question and we'll tackle as many of them as we can later in the week. But we do have other things to talk about now, Scott. Let's talk about Pierre Gasly. He was slightly surprised to finish seventh, given Alpine's struggle for pace for much of the weekend. Do you agree with him that this was one of his best performances of the season? And do you think he's getting the upper hand as Alpine over teammate Ocon? Yeah, he'd said in, um, I think it was after his lap in, his final lap in qualifying on the Friday, said that it had to be better in the race because... uh, that he, I think he felt he'd, he'd got the most out of it, and over one lap it just wasn't there. But given what we then saw, with you know a bit more straight line speed from 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 the Alpine, and it seemed a, a really nicely raceable car, I wonder if there was an element of other cars being flattered a little bit over one lap. So whether that was, for example, the Mercedes, where it was just going through its tires so aggressively, and maybe and. I use the Mercedes as, as an example again. Other cars that might have been getting away with a straight line speed deficit a little bit in qualifying, where you have the DRS use, but then in the race when you don't have the DRS use and that efficiency is a bit more of a factor lap by lap, then maybe it goes back towards the Alpine uh, as as well. But this was a bit more like um, a little bit more like Austin, wasn't it? I remember was it? Uh, I think you asked me after the, the Mexican Grand Prix in our podcast last week. You know, why did it go so wrong for Alpine in Mexico when it had gone so right in Austin? And I sort of flipped it and said, I just don't think they know why it went so well in Austin. This one was a bit more like that in terms of um in terms of race pace. Both of them were competitive, but Gasly just had had the edge um throughout. I thought it was a little bit rude on uh Yuki Sonoda um on the opening lap, uh, which case of mistaken identity I briefly thought was a classic bit of Espan Ocon chopping someone off at the apex, but it wasn't, it was Gasly. Um but I do think Gasly is getting the edge on on Ocon now. I think they've been neck and neck for most of the the year. Ocon had a bit of an advantage for a while, but the more Gasly's sort of the more time he's had there, the more chance he's had to work on things with the team. He just feels a bit more comfortable and on top of everything and just being able to slowly eke more and more out. I remember him saying a few races ago that he felt it would still need until 2024 when things are a bit more optimised for him. But there is evidence of the work that he's putting in paying off, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. The second half of the season has been pretty decent for him. He's been working on the the way the processes are applied and the setups are evolved and that kind of thing. So he's quite uh, quite content with things. Obviously not a massive advantage over. Ocon and Ocon was a bit frustrated after the race. He had a bit of a clutch uh, issue at the second start that um, he felt cost him a bit. But yeah, he ended up with a point. Gasly ended up in uh, in seventh, so slightly diverging uh, races. But yeah, Ocon with a little bit of uh, work to do. But of course, he's had some uh, great moments this season as well. They're quite close on qualifying averages, those two. So it's still a very, very interesting battle. Mark, AlphaTauri, they had a pretty good weekend. Yuki Tsunoda was sixth in the sprint, ninth in the Grand Prix. Valuable haul of five points. So now within seven points of Williams in that battle for seventh in the Constructors' Championship. But should it have been better? Yeah, it's um, it, it should really. They, they, um, they underperformed in 
qualifying, um, the, you know, they went out in Q1 and uh, the sprint qualifying the, the day after showed a much more representative picture of that car's speed in its updated form. It is quite a, a quick car in that midfield, probably head of that midfield um, group. And yeah, it would have been better if Danny Ricciardo hadn't um, taken that hit of the, the rug flying tyre in the first uh, red flag race. And that, obviously that resulted in his pit lane start and I'm going a, a lap down. So, yeah, I'm sure he could have pr- probably been in the points as well had he started somewhere um, in his rightful place. So, yeah, I mean, it's still... the. The positive thing is that it's the, the car is quick, you know, in that battle that they're fighting in the Constructors' Championship with Alfa Romeo and Williams, you'd say it's probably the quickest car. So, um, yeah, they, they might have under-delivered a little bit this weekend, but it's still a quick car and this still came away with some useful points. Yeah, a bit of a frustrating one for Sonoda in the race with a little mistake he made. He probably could have finished maybe seventh ahead of Gasly, had the race been a little bit better, obviously, he... Uh, he uh, lost a little bit of ground on the first lap as well as, as that later mistake into turn 10. But yeah, it, it's it's so frustrating with Sonoda because he had a strong weekend. He had a slight edge on Ricardo in terms of pace. It was something like six thousandths in qualifying and then one tenth in sprint qualifying. But yeah, it could have been a few more points there. But things are coming on quite nicely for Sonoda. It's just, as he keeps talking about, it's that emotion control that he thinks Ricardo's very good at that he wants to uh, to improve on. One 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 final thing on that quickly, sorry, is that like it's the same story as Mexico, right? I, like, I know he was, I think he was very, very good this weekend. I thought his drive in the sprint was absolutely excellent, especially as he picked up a bit of damage on the opening lap. And he did very well in this Grand Prix as well and recovered well from, from that mistake. So, so did gather himself properly, but he's left points on the table again. And that fight with Williams that Alpha Tauri has properly pulled itself back into, like those, those points could be the difference, couldn't they? But by the end of the season with, for Alpha Tauri not finishing seventh in the championship. And I, I really like Yuki. I think he's, a, I think he's such a wonderful driver at his peak and he's a brilliant character, but, I know it's not this binary, but when you look at those mistakes, when those opportunities have been there to get a few more points, that there is a scenario in which he could potentially have cost AlphaTauri seventh in the championship, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think they probably should already be seventh in the championship, certainly after this race. And it's really frustrating because Sonoda is quick. He is a very quick driver and there's still a lot of potential there. And, and it was funny because after the sprint race, I asked him whether he felt he was quite sensible and restrained in that race because he wasn't rash. He was in a queue for quite a lot of the race. He didn't rush it. He picked off Hamilton later on. And he did say, well, yeah, I was patient, but equally I'm really talking about that control in higher stress situations. And then, yeah, you see that when he's had a little bit of a bad start, lost a place to an Alpine. He's maybe a little bit sort of rash trying to get it back as well. And just didn't always help himself with a few of the decisions in in the race. And I think he'll be a little bit frustrated with that. But it's like this, like you say, yeah, this weekend was so close to being a really mega weekend. I've just been doing some work on my my driver rankings. And yeah, fundamentally, that undermines and, and knocks back his ranking quite significantly, just as the mistake in Mexico did. But fundamentally, he's been quick. 
you just sense that the team will be desperate for him to just uh, to get that all under control. He knows what he needs to do. He's so keen to do it. It's all about that side of things. There's a few little things in his driving technique he was talking about, the brake release style compared to Ricardo. He felt he could broaden his driving technique, toolkit as it were, with that. So he's chipping away there. But yeah, it's just that all-round control that he knows he needs to get on top of. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It could cost Alpha Tari 7th, which is significant because it's a big chunk of money. They still got the car to do it. They probably, you would say, should still do it. There's only two rounds left. So some work to do there. It's a bit harder than maybe it, it should be. There was a missed opportunity as well, Mark, for Valtteri Bottas, which was slightly unlikely. He was probably in the mix to, to nab a point when he had a, a retirement. The team blamed it on cooling, possibly uh, a bit more engine related is a little bit on there it's always a little bit unclear with that team when there's anything that could be related to the power unit they tend to say cooling but we'll take them at their word obviously joe retired as well but how surprised were you at bottas popping up in the race given alfa romeo were all over the place really prior to that yeah it's always difficult to call that 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 team in, the, in that car going into any given weekend it's um it can be good. It, it can be good in fast corners. It, 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 it tends to struggle in slow ones. It's yeah, operationally, it's still a little bit suspect. Um, yeah, I, I, you're not surprised when it pops up with a, a, a reasonable showing, but um, equally, you're not surprised when it, it, it's just uh, anonymous in, throughout the weekend. It, it, that's just that's just where it is. Would it shock you, Mark, if I told you that Sauber's officially the only team to have failed to score a single point in the sprint races this season? No. It was about it was about the most um, shruggy moment I had when I compiled the unofficial sprint championship standings um, on Saturday evening. I looked through the drivers and sort of went, oh yeah, well there's, you know, there's a few little bits in there. Well, Carlos Sainz is the third best driver in the sprints this season. That's that's quite good going from Carlos. Look at the teams. Oh yeah, the one thing that didn't surprise me at all, just Sauber nowhere. <laughs> just the only team. Every even Haas, even Haas. But then again, I suppose the sprint races are tailor made for Haas, aren't they? Because they can't do more than a stint. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, again, Alfa Romeo is quite a frustrating team. They have that double points finish in Qatar. You think, oh, maybe they've got they're onto something here. And then of course the triple header, no points. And even when they get into a position to maybe score points, they find a way not to, which is a shame. You know, it, it's tough down there. They have been making some progress, but yeah, they're ninth in the championship for a, a reason, ultimately. And although Bottas had a pretty good weekend and certainly a very good race, yeah, they come away empty-handed again, which is uh, a real shame. Now, Scott, off track, the stewards weren't particularly impressed with the race organisers after some crowd shenanigans at the end of the race. I said this was off track, but obviously this is about them getting on track. So what's the fallout from that? And can you explain what happened? Yeah, basically the organisers of the race have been referred to the FIA World Motorsport Council, which is obviously the the, the highest level of the, the governing body, um, for potential penalties because spectators started a track invasion while cars were still on the circuit. And the stewards, unsurprisingly, took an extremely dim view of this. Now, I... I saw a video after the race of uh, some security personnel. They were sort of grappling a little bit with with fans that were trying to climb the fence. And then the security people were just watching helplessly as several actually managed to get over the top. But I also went back and looked at the onboard footage of some of the cars further down the order. And as they're going into turn one after taking the checkered flag, you can see down to the runoff on the right, uh, ahead, just, just to the right, but mainly ahead, you can see fans running towards the track um, across the runoff, and they—they are I mean, the ones that I saw. 
they were far enough away for it to, you know, it, no one was going to get hit. But that's not the point. Like, you can't be doing that, running towards a, a live racetrack when F1 cars are still going around. That, uh, unbelievable. So, yeah, like I say, Stewart's took a really dim view. Apparently, this kind of thing sounds like it has happened before and there have been security issues in Brazil. So they feel particularly aggrieved that the organisers have failed to put up the correct um, protocol or security measures. Um, so they've been quite quite severely criticised. There's now going to be a thorough investigation. The organisers have to come up with a mitigation plan um, that they then uh, give to the FIA by no later than the end of January next year. And the FIA base has to go back to them and say whether it's good enough or not. But in addition to that, there'll be, an, there'll be this... World Motorsport Council review, and there might be stricter penalties applied. Um, I don't really know what that would be beyond what they've been tasked with, but I think it's right to to take it this seriously. There've been a couple of times now, haven't there? A couple of races have been. I think it was uh, Australian Grand Prix um, got hauled over the coals as well for, for something like this. You know, something needs to be done, and the organisers, the events, maybe need to do a better job. But I also just I don't really think anyone necessarily listening to this podcast would be that stupid, but just don't do it. Like it's, it's the fan behavior just needs to be better. Like the, I saw the, the glee with which some of the fans were throwing themselves at the fence to try and climb over and successfully climb over. It's just such a dumb thing to do. So it just needs just better, just be better all round. You know, and ultimately you can put all these mitigations in place, but the, the security personnel will be overwhelmed in numbers by, by the crowd in, in points. Oh, massively. That's exactly what happened here. That's, so there's some responsibility. Yeah, for sure. So good job, I guess, that Interlagos had agreed a um, new deal to hold the Grand Prix up till 2030 prior to all of that happening. And it is great that the Brazilian Grand Prix is going to be on the calendar for long because it's a great circuit. Obviously, it produced a good weekend of racing, produced a good sprint race as well. And as people kept saying, the sprint races will be better when they're on very raceable circuits, which this one certainly is. But yeah, there inevitably will have to be some proper action taken to stop this sort of thing happening in the future because it is a serious safety issue. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen, plenty to read there. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, our MotoGP, Formula E, and IndyCar podcasts. Have a look at our YouTube channel as well for short and long-form videos. We will be back soon with another episode that will answer the Members Club questions we couldn't get to in this episode, so apologies for that. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.